Hi, welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is composer, sound designer, multimedia performer, and Buchla electronic music specialist, Todd Barton. Todd's musical resume is impressive and unique, to say the least. After four decades of exploration, Todd is still delving deep into the ever-expanding frontiers of musical expression. His portfolio includes such diverse projects as the DNA-derived genome music, scores for plays at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, performances of Zen, Shakuhachi meditation music, avant-garde music for electronic synthesizers and computers, performances with luminaries of jazz and poetry, as well as lecturing on the music and composition from the Middle Ages to the 21st century. Todd has written music for film, television, stage, and for ensembles ranging in size from a string quartet all the way up to the symphony orchestra. His compositions have been performed by the Kronos Quartet, the Oregon Symphony, San Jose Chamber Orchestra, Southern Oregon Repertory Singers, the Shasta Tycho, and the Rogue Valley Symphony, to name a few. Todd's music has also been heard on NPR's Morning Edition, West Coast Live, and The Curve of Wonder. From trumpet to the bukla, Todd shares his musical background, plus we chat about what it means to play the space, the unconventional beauty of the bukla, composing with uncertainty, and his advice for the next generation of musicians. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Todd Barton. Okay, Todd Barton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Um, my pleasure, good. Steve. It's yeah. good to see you. Um, I was look. I was thinking back, and I think it was. Maybe 1985, maybe 1986, when I first met you. I don't actually remember how we met, but I remember um, maybe it was through Michael Van Nuys, uh -huh. perhaps. That could one, be. Because I was taking saxophone lessons. But I remember I I got, um, somehow we started talking, and then I got um, the the Iwi, the Akai. Yes. Iwi, and we took lessons, and you had a... You had a newsletter, the Flint Gun. Was oh, that your newsletter? Uh, the Flint Gun. No, I think that was that was Joe um, Joel Miller, maybe. 
Uh-huh. Or, yeah, I had, uh, it was just called e, uh, e, uh, EWV 2000 or EWI 2000, right. something like that. Yeah, yeah. I still have that. Wow. That, that instrument. <laughs> I know they have a USB one now, but I still have it with its, its uh, little panel and all that. I don't play it very often, but it's, it's still there. Yeah, and I have but, the trumpet version, right? The right. <laughs> but even before that, I think my first exposure to you was Dracula. Uh, um, uh, my mom took me to the Angus Bomer Theater, and it was... I, it's probably the first play I can remember seeing. I, I was probably 10 or 11. I don't know how old I was, actually, but I remember the theater yeah. was very cold. I think they did that <laughs> intentionally. Yeah. And the music was was striking and really moving. Uh, um, well, thank you. Yeah, that was 1982 or 83 and 83. Yeah. That season. It was a, I remember there was one point where they like drive a, they drove a stake into his heart or something happened right before intermission, I think. Um, I don't know. I just remember the whole thing was so dramatic and yeah. the music was captivating and I didn't even really know you. Uh-huh. At that point, but that that thinking back, that was my first exposure wow. to the world of Todd Barton, <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like a theater. Yeah, I, my mom says that um, she took us to Shakespeare. Uh, I don't remember prior to that. I think we probably went to some green shows at at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, but um, yeah. I don't have good memory. <laughs> a good memory for my early, early life, my early childhood. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why that is, but um, I'm glad anyway. that I'm glad that Dracula stuck with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, I wanted to talk about your recent trip, um, to Italy and Brussels and where else did you go? Where else were you? Uh, Amsterdam. 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 So yeah, Italy, all around Italy, uh, Brussels and Amsterdam and home. Mm. Oh, and New York, <laughs> hit yeah. all the hotspots. Um, right. Yeah, New York on the way there. And I did a couple of concerts in New York before going to Italy. And then I was going to like just attend concerts when I got back from Italy, or got back actually from Amsterdam to New York. But sure. it was time to come home. <laughs> How do you, how is that sitting with you right now? Because I, there's a lot going on in Italy and you were just there. Yeah. How are the people that you were in touch with and um, how is that, how is that impacting you right now? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's surreal is I think the impact. And of course, you know, I am staying in touch with uh, the people that I met there that I know there. Uh, and knock on wood, they're all doing well. Um, and, you know, that's like in Rome and Carrara and Turin. And, um, yeah, but I mean, they're saying it's crazy because they've been on lockdown for a while. And for me personally, sure. I was there with my daughter, Ursula, and mm-hmm. you know, she was doing art and I was doing music and, um, I felt like we were, you know, either in the 
mummy where the the movie where the heroine and the hero are trying to outrun a sandstorm or you know indiana jones in the tunnel right. of the boulder it's like we are always at the leading edge and we always were ahead of the curve yeah. so i'm uh, thankful for that but it yeah. was also like you know you you, you uh, just had to keep going forward <laughs> don't <Right>. look back <laughs> right I was struck by this time because there's such uncertainty mm-hmm. right now. And that's, that's, that uncertainty is a big component in the music that you make with ah. the Bukla. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering if, if all those years of dealing with uncertainty in music has bled <laughs> over into your personal life and made you more resilient to uncertainty outside of the music? Ah, that's a great question. Um, I would hope so. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, there's always, uh, you know, there's sometimes where I feel very resilient and other times where I don't. And uh, I guess that's not unlike, you know, using what you refer to in the, you know, the synthesizer I spend a good deal of time with is the Buchla. And the module you're re- referencing is called the source of uncertainty. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a it's a source of random of lots of different flavors of random voltage, and right. uh, which can then control sound or affect sound or change sound. And so, yeah, some days working with that module, things really open up and blossom, and I, I explore new sonic universes that I didn't know were there. Other days, it's like, how's this module work? What? <laughs> you know, so that's, you know, that's sort of the day-to-day living, too, for I think all of us, you know, some yeah. days, the days are just, wow, very yeah. cool, and uh, blossom and open up, and other days, it's like, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also that element when you perform, probably, I'm imagining whether with the bukla or not there's uncertainty as you approach the performance because typically your performances are mostly improv improvised uh correct uh, absolutely 100 100 yeah in <laughs> fact yeah i prefer beginning in uncertainty a beginning not knowing what sound my synthesizer will make in fact mm-hmm. i've made a patch which when i touch a note on the uh you know the body capacitance pad it could be anything and so basically i have to follow that sound and find out where it's leading me and leading my imagination Uh, Mm -hmm. and in brussels in fact i had on the the Buchla Music Easel, which is a suitcase synthesizer, it has 22 sliders, and the sliders shape and sculpt the sound. And so I had an audience member that had never seen a Buchla Music Easel, or even probably knew what it was, right. come up and move all those sliders with the sound off so that neither of us nor the audience could hear. And then when she sat back down, I just pulled the volume up and that's where we started. So I prefer starting with uncertainty uh, because if, 
you start with, with if I start with what's known, uh, it makes me then, I guess the composer in me, you know, if I started out with something I knew, I would sort of know where I would want to take it. And <laughs> I would follow my compositional training mm. and go there. But I wouldn't really be learning anything. I would be, uh, in a sense, manipulating it, which I can mm. do, and I love right. to do, um, and did for 40 years at the Shakespeare <laughs> Festival, composing music right. for, you know, hundreds of uh, different plays and situations. Yeah. So the skill set's there. Mm. But uh, especially in retirement, I've just wanted to go, hey, <laughs> I just... I, should, I want to find something new. <laughs> mm. Was there, um, I know that was a, that was what, eight years ago, nine years ago? Yeah. Eight years when ago. When you retired. Yeah. Uh -huh. Was that transition, did that feel liberating in that way for you that you left such a structured environment to now like, <laughs> okay, you know, now I can I can just explore and play at at will. Yeah, no pun intended from right. There. Okay. <laughs> no pun intended, right. Um yeah. Well, when I worked for Will, um <laughs> um I yeah, I mean it was great because I got to experiment and explore every time. So I love yeah. those 40 years. Uh and yes, uh those 40 years were, you know, decision or composing by committee, basically, you know, there was mm -hmm. the director's vision. And then of course, maybe set design or, you know, needed music to cover a scene shift that was too loud. So, okay, mm -hmm. I can do that. And, you know, lighting needed a different, uh, maybe, uh, entree to the scene so you know chain mm. you know everything from dramatic to subtle changes through the committee <laughs> right which i love the collaborative process sure and yeah now that i've been retired i love just having no no committee <laughs> you know <laughs> except right. the except the wacky committee inside my own mind uh, sure <laughs> that is uh, yeah you know, exploring different things. So what happens when you perform with other um, Bukla artists or other people who do improvised music? Like how does, how does the collaboration work in that structure? Um, I guess we just all trust the sound mm. and we trust each other. Uh, the most amazing recent improvisation was um, a friend of mine, Nathan Moody, uh, who dropped by, we had met online and mm. known each other for a few years, but never met in person. And he was on his way to Seattle to a big synth meet in back in September or October called Velocity. And he was mm. going to give a talk on mastering uh, electronic music, uh, especially for the independent electronic synthesis artist mm -hmm. and uh he was also going to give a performance and so i said well you know he's down in the bay area i said just come here spend the night 
yeah. uh, you know, take a take an evening off. And uh, so he showed up around four o'clock and then uh, we had dinner. And then my friend Bruce Baird, who's my performance partner, he also has a Buchla music easel. Uh, I said, hey, why, why don't we all just jam? And so Fun. we came down here in the basement and uh, Nathan had a bunch of uh, Seat Lombard and a, a handful of pedal effects pedals. Uh, Bruce had his easel and uh, some outboard gear, and I decided to use a thing called a blippo box, which is just a single box with like 12 knobs on it, and mm. uh, I'd never tried that. <laughs> and so, um, and we, the three of us had never played together. Right. And we didn't, and all... And uh, Nathan goes, uh, he's also a very great recordist. Oops. Um, hang on. Sorry. There was That's a right. phone call. Um, so uh, Nathan Moody is also a great uh, sound engineer and sound oh, okay. designer. So he brought yeah. out as a like Zoom high-end or Sony TAC, you know, stereo recorder. And we, he said it right, you know, in among the three of us. So we were recording, you know, acoustically, not going direct into any board or anything. Right. And, um, you know, I think maybe he said, well, where do we start? And I said, let's just start in silence. Hmm. And so there was silence. And then one of us made a sound. <laughs> And we jammed for like 60 minutes nonstop. Wow. So no words had ever been spoken about structure or scope or shaping or anything. And in the end, we ended up releasing it as an album. I mean, it wow. really, really worked. So, you know, even though I never met Nathan, and of course, Bruce and I have played together for years, but Bruce had never met Nathan. I had mm. no, we had no idea what he was going to bring to the table, yeah. uh, uh, musically and, and sonically. Um, but so I think it's about actually maybe the, the best answer to your original question is listening. Yeah. It just comes yeah. down to listening and breathing with each other. And of course, trusting sound and trusting each other. Right. And that follows the line of your lifelong curiosity of with sound and following the sound that that's a big theme. Yes, indeed. For you, <laughs> which I love. And I also wonder, like, do you catch yourself? I would imagine like, do you have to refrain from, um, I'm not sure how to say this from the ego kind of coming in and saying, Ooh, I really want this to go here rather yeah. than following what's actually happening. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, I think we all have that, uh, tendency. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I've thought about that, um, I try not to do that, you know, and, and the, the, what you just described is actually 
as soon as you say or think, I want to take it in this direction, you just took yourself out of the moment because you just had a thought, which is going to separate you from the here and now. I mean, it's, I know it's, it probably sounds strange, but it does. Uh. And so as soon as you're separated from the here and now, that's when, of course, the ego can come in. And then if you want to try to guide or muscle uh, <laughs> the improvisation in a certain direction, you can. Um, yeah. But I just try to say, stay, uh, not, not going to that thought yeah. to begin with. Staying, and, staying uh, pres present. Yeah. In fact, Nathan, uh, when he was doing an interview recently, it was fascinating to hear him talk about that evening of that mm. improvisation. And uh, I, you know, he saw me as, I mean, once again, we had just met that evening. I mean, he knew my, some of my work online and, you know, through emails, but yeah, uh, he, we'd never been in the same room. And so it's always interesting to see how other people see you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was saying, Todd is endlessly doing gap analysis. In other <laughs> words, he's, he's sitting back and, and not playing, finding out where the gap is, and then sort mm -hmm. of using that to bridge things into some, you know, just to act as a bridge, as a nexus. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that's part of it too. Yeah. Yeah. That rings true for me. The, uh, just staying present, like as, as a met, as someone has a meditation practice that mm. definitely relates. And even in when I am improvising, which is mostly a jazz situation, it's for me, it's most interesting when, when you're just listening and, and, mm. and reacting or it's not even reacting. I would say it doesn't feel like reaction. It's, I don't know what I think the adjective is. Response? I think it's response. Yeah. 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 That's when it's most exciting. Yeah. yeah. And uh, one of my, my drama and English lit professor actually, you know, decades ago got to, he would do back in the sixties when I was in mm. conservatory and college. Um, mm. I backed him up playing trumpet in a small trio where he would do beat poetry, like improvised poetry, you know, spoken oh, cool. word. And yeah. We'd be backing him up. And, uh, but he came through town decades later and he said, you know, I just did, I got to do poetry with Dizzy Gillespie. And I was like, <laughs> wow, really? That's wow. awesome. And, uh, he said, and my teacher's name was Cy Khan and, uh, you know, after the gig, uh, he and Dizzy went out for drinks and <laughs> Cy asks Diz, how did you get so good? <laughs> and Dizzy goes, well, you know, Cy, it took me 20 years to learn what to leave out. So, right. <laughs> so, you know, leaving right. out, listening is a big part of leaving out. Uh, yeah. And then not filling up the bandwidth when you come in. <laughs> Yeah, the space between the notes. I think it was Miles Davis might mm -hmm. have said something like that too. Mm -hmm. Like the, it's not the notes you play; it's the the space mm -hmm. you leave between the notes. And of course, mm -hmm. he was a master. Absolutely. Of that. 
Yep. You know, and listening to your Bukla recordings, what struck what strikes me is that visually I look at that instrument and it seems so cold. It's knobs and mm. switches and fader. You know, it's like it's not <laughs> like looking at a cello or right. <laughs> or a saxophone that has this sort of I mean, it has its own beauty, but it, it, there's a coldness to it, and and I think there's a uh, there's an association in general with synthesizers and electronic instruments that have a sort of cold quality. But I, I don't have that experience in listening to, well, particularly analog synthes- synthesis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and you've talked about how the bukla has a warm and organic quality mm-hmm. to it, um, and that you consciously, well, even way back before you had the easel, you know, you talked about when the DX7 came out and the digital thing was really, you know, everybody jumped on the digital bandwagon, and you were still like, hey, wait a second, like, <laughs> don't forget about the. Uh, the analog um does that does that feel the organicness and the warmth um does that that feels true to you i'm sure with those with those instruments uh totally and i guess what i love about the analog uh instruments is that i feel like especially with the bukla which has this Uh, people refer to it as pressure sensitive, but it's actually body capacitance. It's Mm. just like the uh, electronic valve instrument or the electronic wind instrument, the EVI that we were talking about earlier, right? It's like, you know, when your fingers touch the metal pads, your body completes the circuit and your body Mm. then becomes this giant resistor. And the more flesh the more resistance and the less flesh, less resistance. So you can work that. So it's not unlike um, that. I find it very similar to like maybe a violin Mm. where, you know, pressure uh, or, you know, the pressure of your finger, whether the left hand or, and the pressure, the combination of the pressure of the bow and where the bow is on the string. I mean, there's so many factors going into you know, you can play one note a hundred different ways, one pitch a hundred different ways, depending on where and how much of all these right. factors are happening. And that's true, I find, with the easel. Plus, so I mean, I'm actually touching the electrons, so I feel yeah. connected, as opposed to digital, um, which this is not a diss against digital. It's just sure, I'm sure. old, so I grew up <laughs> with analog. It's your preference. Uh, but for me, I yeah. found digital was scrolling through presets or menus, or if I had to change the curve of an envelope, I had to go in and um, change and, uh, you know, uh, tell this screen that it needed to be the attack knob or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, I, uh, and uh, the keyboards, even though they would have aftertouch, we're still percussive keyboards. You know, you yeah. had to, t- you, could, you could program a slow attack, but you still had to right. hit the keyboard. 
Whereas with the easel, I can start with my fingertips and there's no sound. And then I can bring it in like imperceptibly, mm. slowly. Uh, right. Or I can hit it hard and, you know, and everything yeah. in between. So um, I feel like it is a real instrument. And yeah. I get to play the sliders and the knobs and the switches. In fact, uh, I put up a something I think on Instagram or maybe it was on my YouTube and it had sort of a close up of my easel and a friend of mine uh, who also has a, a podcast called the source of uncertainty, right. Kyle, Kyle Swisher yeah. made, uh, he said, wow, you can really tell how you've used it because all the, all the uh, lettering and numbering has been worn off. You know? <laughs> and, you know, I said, I wrote back and said, yeah, you know, it's like a, it's like an instrument. I mean, you look at, you look at people's guitars or um, violins or, you know, even my trumpet back in the day would have, you know, where my, you know, sweat or something would start mm. eating through the brass. You know, there's yeah. all these different patinas that you see on true instruments. And, you know, my easel has a patina of use yeah. as an instrument, not as just a random collection of uh, sound thingies <laughs> right circuits and yeah. metal and yeah what is the what is the audience response to it like like people that have never encountered that i imagine they walk in and they're used to coming into a concert with like a string quartet or a jazz quartet or you know like actual instruments they come in and they see this guy with a table full of wires and and you know, strange, odd looking things. Like what's the, yeah. how, how is their response or how have you found their response to the music? Well, I found, you know, the full spectrum. I mean, there's some people <laughs> that, what? <laughs> uh, but, the, uh, you know, I mean, even recently, some of these performances, people have come up and said, you know, it was like for them transcendent. And I mean, mm. I, I'm not, I'm not doing ambient music. I'm doing some pretty, uh, you know, angular stuff at times. And, right. it, you know, it goes, it goes from, I try to cover a, a wide spectrum sonically, you know, explore yeah. one. It depends on where the sound's taking me. So, yeah. uh, and everything in between, I think maybe the difference, um, I, I think why people respond is mm -hmm. because I'm breathing with the instrument um, mm. and every gesture I make has a, res a result in the audio field. So right. they can see, they can see my connection right. and they can also see, uh, that I'm risking. Mm. I don't have pre-recorded tracks that I can, you know, engage <laughs> if my brain starts to, you know, fuzz out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I do loop sometimes so that gives you know some stretching of time mm. um but yeah everything is happening in the moment and everything is connected yeah. does that make sense yeah it sounds quite vulnerable like a uh, very vulnerable type of performance uh it is <laughs> <laughs>
And I think that creates intimacy. I mean, my experience of vulnerability is when you're vulnerable, whether it's in yeah. art or a relationship or, or what have yeah. you, that, that creates a sense of intimacy. So I would yeah. imagine that the audience feels that. Uh, I hope so. And it, it, it seems like from many of the responses I've gotten, as awesome. I was explaining to another person, you know, the, what you get of me performing live on stage is the closest thing you're going to get to reading my private journal entries, <laughs> which you will never get to read. Right. <laughs> of course. does the audience play when there's when you're exploring the sound like what is there any influence that they have on you as the performer i'm sure they do on a purely i, I know they do on a purely ener energetic level right uh, i'm not trying to i'm trying to explore the sound as honestly and authentically as i possibly can without and staying in the now yeah in i guess the hopes that everyone's going to take that journey mm. and what i also f have found is since it's purely improvisational i've for the last couple of years realized i play the space i play mm. the sound system you know i mean i've played in small venues with really good sound systems so that um you know, basically, I'm getting feedback from the um, from the room and from the sound right. system, and of course from the people, uh, yeah. because I actually this goes back to when you know back when I was a teenager and in conservatory uh, mm -hmm. playing trumpet and doing solo concerts, you know, with either organ or harpsichord or small chamber groups. Right. I would definitely go in and have an hour to myself in the space to just play in the space by myself and listen to the sound of my trumpet coming back from the back wall, from the side walls. It was all a matter of learning the space and then imagining and realizing as soon as people are in it, it's going to shift. But I would have, but I had a point of reference. Yeah. So it's like, oh, it's, uh, you know, the the reverb shifted by you know a certain amount uh all of a sudden my attacks are sharper than i thought mm -hmm. um yeah but i was able to grok that yeah. and so i've used that in doing electronic music because 
you know, I mean, I, all of a sudden, these amazing sound systems can do stuff that I didn't know my easel could do. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, my last performance in Europe was at the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam, not in the big hall, <laughs> mm. but, you know, in the small space. Yeah. But it had an eight-channel Meyer sound system with a big subwoofer. And uh, I found sounds I had never heard before. And so you find them and you go, oh, wow, let's listen to that for a bit and see where that <laughs> goes. What if I do this? Oh, whoa, okay. That, yeah. that opened up that. Had no idea. but uh, So it, mm. it's continual discovery of the space and the and the sound system, which uh, the audience is a part of. Right, right. That's super valuable to what you just said, even a, for an acoustic instrumentalist like myself, um, going into the space and really getting intimate with it, knowing what the response is, knowing what it sounds like. I had similar experiences in grad school, like making mm -hmm. sure I would go in. Mm -hmm. I had keys to everything, so I would be able to go and like play it late at night and and hear hear all it sounds yeah that also makes me think about like as a wind player i never really know what i sound like because my head is vibrating <laughs> and the sound that i'm hearing isn't the sound that the audience is hearing and that's that's something unique about the the bukla i would imagine is that you're hearing well i mean you're 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 probably not out in front of the speakers but you're probably getting a more realistic idea of what the audience is actually experiencing in terms of your sound than say i would from playing the saxophone it's sort of like when you hear your own voice and you're like whoa that's mm. not what i thought i sounded like you know what i mean mm. um i i know what you mean and um Actually, I don't know that I am hearing everything that they're hearing. In uh -huh. fact, I op uh, at Concertgebouw in Amsterdam, they asked me to give a talk about you know, what I do and the easel and things like that. And the very first thing I did was play a sine wave, which is the simplest. There are no harmonics. It's just a pure yeah. fundamental. It's, you know, it's like a... Oh, well, flute's a triangle wave, so it's even simpler than a flute. You know, maybe a right. recorder. Clarinet, maybe? Uh, that's Closer. a square wave. That's a square wave. So, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Flute or maybe a recorder or some, some sort of whistle yeah. that doesn't have harmonics. So I played sort of a mid-range sine wave, and I asked them to move their heads left or right or up or down until mm. it sounded really loud. And so you had this whole audience like moving and finally hitting. <laughs> and then I said, now move. So it's really, really soft. And so they move around and all of a sudden they're in a completely different configuration. Wow. And it's really soft because, you know, sine waves will self cancel depending what reflective surfaces are coming. Oh, so, right. um, you know, and, you know, I even suggest they go back and while listening to the music, you know, or mm. whatever I'm doing, yeah. there can be a, a, a huge uh, 
sometimes a subtle and sometimes a huge difference. And that's yeah. true for all acoustic, or for all sound, yeah. period. And right. so I never think of myself as divorced from or separate from what they're hearing, even though sure. I, I, there's, again, I, there's, uh, I just trust that they're on the journey. Uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, I know basically what sort of sound I'm, you know, I, I mean, I'm hearing what sound I'm coming out with yeah. and exploring it, but uh, not worrying about if I'm hearing, quote, the real thing or if sure, they're sure. hearing the real thing. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I yeah. 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 That's awesome. You it's were, all it's all just waves, right? right? It's all energy. Yeah. <laughs> so you started you started on the trumpet. Why? I'm curious why the trumpet. Like what? I know there's the story of your third grade teacher in the composition, hmm. but you were already playing trumpet before that, or was that? After? It was about the same time, you know, that was third grade, so eight yeah. years old. Yeah, that's about when you're old enough to, or can you actually hold a trumpet right. know, physically. <laughs> what drew you to the trumpet? I'm curious. Um, gosh, I am too. If you recall. <laughs> I, yeah, I do not recall that. I think, I, I you know, ba we had band in elementary school, and they may have just, I vaguely remember, you know, they're one day going like, here are a bunch of instruments, pick up mm -hmm. one. And <laughs> I think I just randomly picked it up yeah. for whatever reason. Right. And uh, yeah. And it was fascinating too, because I remember, you know, learning to read music, mm -hmm. the trumpet and, um, and also, my parents rented the trumpet, you know, uh -huh. the local music store. Sure. And uh, when I was nine, I had decided that uh, I didn't like the trumpet anymore because I, you know, <laughs> I've been practicing every day, yada yada yada. Right. And so I remember going to dinner and telling my parents, "Oh, I, I don't think I'm into the trumpet anymore." And they said, mm. "Oh, okay." And. Um, and he said, why don't we just put it, you know, up on the shelf in your closet? And if you ever change your mind, you'll know where it is. I said, mm. Okay. Wow. Later I found out that night they were going to tell me that they had paid off the trumpet. <laughs> but they were That's smart funny. enough to just say, okay, sure. I guess yeah. stick it away. And like, you know, three months later, it was like, I could not wait to get back to it. And oh, then, wow. Yeah. So smart were parents. Yeah, they seem, yeah, very smart. Were they musical as well? Was there a lot of music in your house growing up? Uh, they were not musical. I mean, they you know, they played music. Uh, my mom, mm -hmm. you know, I remember there's a collection that of, uh, uh, you know, vinyl of, uh, yeah. you know, all the classics, you know. So I remember listening to, you know, everything I could get my hands on. As far mm -hmm. as classical music, and then okay. I totally, you know, got into jazz in junior high, and mm. started buying all kinds of records and started my collection. So right, yeah, 
And then did you did you play along with those jazz records on the trumpet? Did you start like learning stuff by ear at that point? Uh, I was, you know, I played played somewhat along, and I also tried uh, actually in junior high. Dave Brubeck's tune "Take Five came out, so mm-hmm. junior high. What am I? Ten, eleven? Yeah, 12 something like most. that. Yeah. And I remember going to my uh, teacher, junior high public school teacher, and saying, "I want to, I want to transcribe this for my five-piece combo because I had a five-piece group already." <laughs> and uh, so he he would help me every day after school, and so we would, mm. you know, play the forty-five and slow it down to thirty-three, take it down an octave, and and right. uh, you know, and so I learned to write out the parts and. Uh, you know, so there was that going on. Right. Had really good music teachers all the time. Yeah. And did they, did those early music teachers, well, who was your first trumpet teacher? Let me ask you that. Do you remember, was it your band director? Mm, no, he played trombone. Okay. Uh, I studied with Red. Oh, I can't remember his last name. <laughs> yeah. You know, he played in bands in the, uh, in the Bay Area? In the Bay Area. And then when I was in junior high, that was through elementary school. When I was in mm-hmm. junior high, I started taking trumpet lessons with Don Reinberg, who was the principal trumpet of the San Francisco Symphony. So, Right. How did you manage to get lessons with him? How did you make that connection? Do you know? I'm just I curious. I can't remember now. Yeah. I mean, I was too young. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and what do you remember? What um, did he help you structure your practice? Um, oh yeah, or start to shape your practicing. He helped me shape my practice, and he also taught me um, what we were talking about before, which was risk. Mm. He said there are two kinds of mistakes. You know, I, I was playing like all the standard, you know, Arbins etudes and scales and da 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 and and this standard literature and um, he says there's two kinds of mistakes uh an honest mistake and uh a fake or a faux mistake he Mm. says an honest mistake is when you're going for it a hundred percent and the note just doesn't come he says that's okay that's okay but if you're shying away from it and are afraid to go after that note, that's the false faux right. mistake. You know, so go for it, you know. And so, the, right. yeah, that was great, you know, hearing hearing that come from the principal trumpet of the San Francisco Symphony where, <laughs> boy, everything's on the line, I right. would think, every time. There's yeah. no place to hide. <laughs> yeah, and the demands are quite high to be... Yeah precise and then you also study with marv stam yeah right wow and you're really going through the (laughs) archive there yeah those were in summer uh summer jazz camps that went for a few weeks uh, every summer for a few few years yeah but you had private lessons with him yeah yeah and what were those like what what sort of things did he he instruct you on or guide you shape phrasing mm-hmm. yeah. you know 
Yeah, especially, you know, shape and phrasing is where it's at in big bands, right? Right. Uh, or at least in my humble opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and, and timbre, you know? Yeah. Color, you're blending, you know? Or, you know, when, when, to, when to come out and when to lay back. Sure. Or, you know? Yeah. I guess, I guess it's, uh, you know, tone color is what's driven me ever since I was like probably five. And, mm. uh, you know, that's why I have, you know, that's, that's why jazz was in my life. That's why classical music was in my life. That's why mm -hmm. early music, Baroque Renaissance, um, medieval music. And that's why electronic music, it's all about color and timbre and, right. you know, back to the big band, you know, you're, if you're listening carefully, you can, you know, if you're like you, a sax player, you know yeah. how everyone, it might say forte for all four, everybody play loud, but you know, if right. you pull back just a little, the color is going to open up. Right. Or if you go just a little further, the color is going to, you know, and hopefully everybody's doing that, you know, right. and intuitively knows, ah, there's the sweet spot. Yeah. Oh, what? I have a cat. <laughs> <laughs> That's speaking of sounds. Yes. Um, I may and, have to, can we pause here for a second? Sure. I'll let yes. her out. Otherwise we're going to yeah. have meow no, no, meow. That's fine. <laughs> okay. That's fine. Hang on. Go ahead. Hey, okay. I'm okay. back. Yeah. So when you were in conservatory, what, what take me through what, like <laughs> you're practicing. I'm curious about how you practiced and how, how in your practice sessions would you practice that sort of self-discovery, that sort of sonic discovery? Or did you, was it a conscious thing during practice sessions or was that just always part hmm. of your consciousness through all of what you practice? Hmm. Uh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Back then, you know, I was just trying to get through all the exercises and etudes and, and, and uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess the, the, uh, the answer is a little more specific in that, especially when I was playing jazz, you know, I, you, you, You'd learn all the Dizzy Gillespie solos and some Miles mm -hmm. Davis solos. Um, right. And that's a great way to learn the vocabulary. But I remember one day going, hmm, I want my own vocabulary. So I would mm -hmm. wake up every day and just make a riff that was not those riffs. <laughs> make a phrase, you know, just make three notes mm. and something that really spoke to me. And yeah. then I'd write it down. Okay. And so I just started my own dictionary. Uh, right. Or, uh, so you had a little notebook you would jot that you would yeah. jot those down in. Yeah. And then would you practice those in all 12 keys and that whole business? Uh, yeah. You know, just yeah. Yeah, make it, <laughs> make it mine. Sure. So. That's cool. How yeah. did it different with recorder? Was it any different 
in the I mean I know there are different instruments trumpet and recorder but was your approach to practicing much different to moving to that instrument um well of course I was playing you know medieval renaissance and baroque you know already written music but yeah. in all three of those uh style eras um there was improvisation in fact there's yeah books you can go back from the period that show you how mm. to like improvise on just simple melodies so yeah. that end of things i was always practicing that and yeah. uh, and also yeah recorder is completely different from trumpet because it's right. pretty much it's like playing an organ pipe you know it's on and off you don't right. you can't you can't fade in a recorder uh, right. like you can a trumpet and you sure. can't fade you can sort of fit you uh, so all, all of a sudden articulation length of note becomes your vocabulary uh, much like you know harpsichord too which is on yeah. and off but you can give the impression of legato <laughs> mm -hmm. but uh, so everything went down into a microcosm for me and you mm -hmm. know learning different ways of uh, expression I guess yeah where you play keyboard too though right you've I mean mm. the bukla has <laughs> a keyboard on yeah, it yeah it has a keyboard <laughs> but it doesn't really react like a keyboard okay. I mean it, it can if you want it I mean it right. it doesn't it's just a piece of metal basically okay all right uh, but you uh, never so, studied piano or keyboard yeah I, I mean I studied piano in junior high and high school uh basically in order to get into the conservatory and then in conservatory you have to take a year of or I back then you yeah. had to take a year of piano so I you know I passed my piano proficiency played my Bach two-part invention and a <laughs> right. sight read a Bach chorale or something um uh -huh. but that's about as far as it goes no I'm not I mean I surely enjoy playing what I play on the keyboard but I'm right don't have keyboard <laughs> chops yeah sure sure so when you're practicing now, so you head out, are you still practicing in your studio? Out, is your yeah. little studio still out there? So um, when you head out to your studio and you're, you, I, I think I heard or read somewhere where you're creating your own exercises. What does that, what does that look like now? What does Todd Barton's practice mm. look like now mm. compared to conservatory days <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah totally different instruments but well i guess it's back to follow the sound mm -hmm. and um you know i've been saying that for a long time yeah i've been trying to figure out what you know how to put that make it a little less esoteric <laughs> <laughs> and uh a few weeks ago you know i don't know a month ago when i was in italy I realized what it is uh, from, or, you know, an analogy at any rate is mm. it was at sunset and there was this old guy that he had a metal detector, you know, one of those discs on a stick. Yeah. And I, you know, I see lots of, uh, I'd seen, you know, you see many of them uh, now yep. and then. Uh, and I've never, 
used one, so I have no idea what's going on. But I looked in his eyes, and he was, I could tell he was listening really deeply. There was a mm. focus there. It was like, you know, watching a samurai swordsman, you know, mm. that sort of focus. And I was like, yeah. wow, what, what's that? You know, I, I said, I, and I knew what it was because you could, you can tell when somebody's really listening deeply and you can also tell when people are, you know, just sort of listening. Right. And, um, I think we all sort of listen, uh, but that <laughs> deep listen was like, whoa, okay. And that took me online to some YouTubes to find out, well, what was he listening to in his headphones, right? Because the, the mm -hmm. metal detectors are hooked up to the headphones. And so right. it's these really weird bleeps and blops and squawks and squeaks. And, you know, I mm -hmm. guess that goes faster when you get closer to metal and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. And they were saying that sort of the... Uh, day tripper metal detectors, detectorists, uh, listen on the surface. Cause that's, uh, in other words, when all of a sudden the beeping gets faster or uh, a sound changes, that's what they're, they're looking for because that's like maybe an inch or two beneath the sand. Uh, and mm. they often go out after the beaches have cleared so they can find, you know, keys or coins or a watch right. or something. Uh, from the recent past. But uh, the more I looked into this, the there are other sounds way buried beneath those surface sounds hmm. that are happening, that if you tune into them, that's where it's six inches to 12 inches under the surface. And that's where you might find really fascinating old stuff. <laughs> right. So Artifacts. the analogy where I'm going with this is yeah. for me, I will bring up a, uh, I'll start with a sound and then I'll try to look, listen deep enough to see what's going on there and try to bring that up to the surface. Uh, like, uh, someone would bring something up that's like, oh, you know, more valuable than that surface stuff yeah. and dust it off and look at it and go, Oh, that's cool. You know? And so mm -hmm. I, my practice is trying to listen deeper so I can bring up these old new things. <laughs> sure. What For skills, me. what do you think are like some good skills? Like if for someone to have, if they wanted to, they wanted to get into playing the bukla or any other um, similar type electronic instrument. Like, is there, like, what is the skill set required or is there one? Or, oh, um... wow. That's a good question. <laughs> As John Cage said, I'd, such a good question. I'd hate to ruin it with an answer. <laughs> um, like, you don't have to read music to play the bukla. No, oh. No, not not at all. You right. don't have to read music to do any electronic music. I mean, that True. was the that was the game changer, right? <laughs> right. Back in the fifties, when Stockhausen held up a piece of tape and he said, "I can actually touch sound, and right. I can record sound, and I can be the composer and the recording engineer and the performer, and it's locked on tape." Right. Which I will then play back for you. Right. <laughs> and no score. I mean, right. You know, 
you could do graphic scores, but you can do mm-hmm. you can do scores if you want, but you if you don't have to, yeah, right. Um, but um, yeah, you so don't need formal musical training necessarily to right to again, do it this comes either. back to listening, I think, yeah, and yeah. Um, what I find too working with people that are new to the easel, if I can just be more specific, is yeah, yeah. Um, go slowly. Uh, in other words, turn the knob, move the slider really slow, and just listen to what that one thing does. Mm. And, uh, what I find a lot of people do is they, you know, they look at those 22 sliders and go, oh, if I take them all to 10, it's going to sound great. <laughs> Well, if you take them all to 10, it's going to sound pretty not great. Uh, and um, so I recommend yeah. going, you know, just exploring slowly, finding the finding the uh, spectrum, the range, uh, which is actually, huh, now that I think about it, goes back to my recorder days studying mm. Baroque recorder with Franz Bruchen in Amsterdam. Yeah, and the first lesson was, I want you to play. You know, I I had to go home and play each note for, uh, I don't know, you know <laughs> minutes for each note, <laughs> and go up chromatically on the recorder. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said, I want you to tune it in like a radio. So first of all, you know, take a note and start. You know, just blow and then increase your breath pressure until that note just goes high and then just breaks up and goes into air, Mm -hmm. into right. Okay, that's your upper limit. And now take a normal breath into the recorder and start lowering the breath pressure softer. And so the pitch goes down and eventually the note disappears again. So you found out where the note disappears with lots of breath pressure and low breath pressure. He says, now just keep taking those parameters. Don't go as high. Don't go as low until you find, and you keep doing this. So you spend minutes on each note until you find Mm. its sweet spot. Right. And then you go to the next one and repeat. (laughs) (laughs) So I, you know, that was what I learned from, recorder, but I think it really applies to anything and especially to analog synthesis because just moving a knob or a dial uh, or a slider, a lot can happen. And if you're going too fast, you won't find those sweet spots. It's about patience and sweet spots. (laughs) Yeah. Patience and waiting. Yeah. That's something I've heard you say, say before. With and I find that's true with practice as well as performing is I think it's easy I don't know it feels easier now than when I was 20 to be patient and and wait I, there's something about youth there's an I feel like there's an an absolutely in, it's impatience it's, yeah <laughs> that's our job description at the, as youth <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
as you look back over your career, Todd, I'm wondering if there's any like particular moments that stand out as really pivotal for you moments that really either shifted your perspective or changed your trajectory. I mean, retirement obviously is one, but, um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, you know, but prior to that, like, I think I'm thinking about either like people that you met or like maybe the, the composition you did for the Oregon symphony or any, any sort of like landmarks that, were really pivotal for you as as a as a musician or artist um so many of them yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean getting the chance to work with ursula Le Guin to do music and poetry the cash for her book always coming home was pivotal yeah. and we spent two years together on that so um that was great uh, and and that and we continued on with the the ta- her translation of the Tao Te Ching and, you know, mm-hmm. and always uh, that friendship continued uh, and uh, uh, still has an impact on me. Um, yeah, you mentioned the Oregon Symphony. It was great to write for them to have, get a commission to do that. And, you know, that just opened up Gave me a chance to explore the uh, timbral qualities of a large orchestra with, I think I got six percussionists. So that was a blast. Yeah. And uh, early in the 80s, actually, before, just before Dracula, uh, I got uh, got to meet the Kronos Quartet. And they still had, they had uh, fully, uh, you know, reached stardom yet. Uh, they actually came through town and I was sitting on the brick courtyard out by the festival and guy comes up and says, Hey, you Todd? And I go, yeah. Right. I remember come down to cooks, which was the bar down the the tavern. And I says, we have a string quartet. And I went, yeah, sure. I'd love to. Mm. And it was a Kronos quartet. And it was Hank Dutt who had come to say, Hey, and uh, they said, you know, we'd love to perform here. And I said, oh, that'd be great. So I worked out a thing for them to perform on the Elizabethan the next year. Right. And they also <laughs> recorded all the music for Dracula that year up here, you know. And then the next year I did Per Gint and um, mm. they had taken off in that one year. Yeah. And so you it was, fly down there. Uh, they couldn't like drive up here. <laughs> To record. Yeah. I had to fly down to San Francisco on a certain day, yeah. uh, you know, at Russian Hill recording and we're going to do it, you know? So that was, that was great. And same thing for the right. next, uh, what, what breaking what, the silence. Oh, I'm curious what, them. so yeah. What did you was, learn working from them? Like what did, what did they teach you about composition or quartets that maybe you did, you had no idea about when you first started or. Well, uh, as a friend of mine, <laughs> John Geist, who also was writing for them at the same time, <laughs> said, you know, they're going to make your music sound really good, really. And they, and they will show you things that you didn't know. So, you know, as far as like, you know, I was writing with certain things in mind and all of a sudden when, you know, they bring mm-hmm. their talent to those notes, uh, yeah. There's new discoveries. But was it 
a collaborative that. feel collaborative with them in terms of like you're writing but then are they making were they making suggestions or uh... oh yeah right yeah absolutely and i guess that's also the way i've worked with all right. my compositions it probably comes from having been in theater where it is collaborative all the time i I re uh, I don't think I've ever like written a piece of music without. Sure. I, I always right. write it for a specific ensemble person or group so that I can have that personal connection. I don't just write it and <laughs> go here it is and <laughs> you have to do it this way. I'm right. not taking any feedback. <laughs> Which is do you, no, did you I find one more challenging than the other in yeah. terms of like writing for film or writing for the theater or like commissions for specific groups or, or the, the orchestra, for example, uh, I'm sure they all have their own unique challenges. I'm sure that I'm obviously they do, but, um, are any one of those in particular more challenging for you than the other? Huh? Um, the most challenging part for all of them is the deadline. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, and so that, you know, uh, mm -hmm. yes, like you say, they all have their own unique internal challenges. The difference of writing for a string quartet or uh, small ensemble yeah. for a theater piece or writing for film, the internal challenges are completely different, but right. the one common denominator <laughs> is the deadline on all of those. And that really, you know, then, you know, we should have these, you know, had you been able to interview me like 10 days or five days before a deadline, right? <laughs> you know, then I'd really be able to tell you what was going How on. How do you uh, uh, practice patience uh, and waiting when there's yeah. a deadline? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a really good question. It's a conundrum. Um, Right. Yeah, especially at the theater where I was composing maybe three shows at a time. Um, there wasn't, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I would have to take some waiting time just to gather my thoughts. But the beauty there was if I was sort of, quote, blocking on one play, you know, score for <laughs> play A, I could move right. over to play B and start working on that, I, you know. So it's, uh, right. Yeah. And if that blocked, I could go to play C and work on that. Sure. And then that I might have inspiration and get back to A. So it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, I mean, the whole creative process is real. <laughs> have you ever suffered a, a amazing mystery? Writer's block? Yeah, I actually did sort of recently, mm -hmm. like, I don't know, nine months ago. And it was writer's block wow. for some electronic music, which I thought I'd never block on. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, I never had the luxury of blocking sure. for more than a day or two when I, you're writing at the right. festival. Uh, 
or uh, some of the other things. Uh, so it was interesting because in a way I, I didn't have any mm-hmm. other uh, projects going at the time. Um, so yeah, it's just yeah. amazing how our minds totally. can trap us. No. <laughs> and, uh, what not, broke not it? a fun feeling. Do you, do you remember? Uh, but, uh, or how did it break? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was actually, I decided to take some time <laughs> off rather than just sitting around trying to take time off. I took time off. And oh, I went nice. up actually to that uh, this velocity at Seattle. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I got to meet some folks. I uh, got to meet, uh, actually Banna Hafar, who's, she's like the, uh, wow. my favorite have to check her out. analog synthesis at this point and composer. Yeah. In fact, she just did a piece for oh, cool. modular synthesis and third coast percussion ensemble, yeah. which has been coming That's exciting. to the Brit festival. Oh, so, uh, yeah, no, just, just actually hanging with her and, uh, you know, talking music and talking, you know, yeah. how wide open everything is musically and the possibilities nice. there was uh, Todd, you've, flipped you've a switch. done so much so, your career i mean yeah. i look at all the stuff that you've written composed performed what's still on your bucket list like what what's what's still out there that you're like wow i really wish i could do uh, in the blank <laughs> well i have a lot of projects already in the hopper so those oh, are oh cool yeah and what, one project hmm? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. We'll yeah, I mean, one project is actually releasing a seven-inch uh, vinyl of some of my Buchla stuff, and that's mm. uh, have to pick that thread up because um, everything has been on hiatus for two and a half months while I've been in Europe. Yeah. Uh, there's that. There's a project of doing graphic score my my graphic scores and perform and having me perform them. <laughs> mm. um, also. Uh, uh, there's, I came up with a concept album <laughs> while mm. I was in Italy, which I've never done before. I've never like started with concept. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, I get to the point where it's like, Ooh, I know I want to write some music. Let's write the music. And as I start to write various tracks near the end of the process, I may, or I will give them a title, sure. but I actually started out. Uh, there was a book I've been reading that I was reading at the time called uh, "The Order of Time" mm. by Carlo Rovelli, who's a physicist. Astro, or, you know, he's doing quantum loop gravity or something like oh, that. Awesome! And um, the book I found really inspiring. So uh, I actually made up the title of the album. And gave each track a title already. Wow. And I haven't written any of it, but it's all <laughs> bouncing around inside. And I'm looking, you know, so that's that's one of the bucket list pieces is hopefully over nice. the next year, year and a half, I'll be able to put that together. So, Sweet. Yeah. Um, what are you listening to these days? What's on your Spotify or 
iPad, <laughs> iPhone, whatever your device. Like, what are you? What's piquing your interest right now? Uh, I I really don't listen a lot because I'm composing a lot. <laughs> I don't have a Spotify play. I don't have playlists. Okay. Sorry, I'm old. Oh, that's all right. Uh, okay, and um, I mean, what I'm what I was listening to last night is a friend of mine. Um, Federico Placidi, he and I did a CD together a few years back, and he brought me to Rome to speak at St. Louis College of Music, uh, where he mm. teaches electronic music. And he gave me an LP of his called um, mm. uh, Lucid, and uh, it's analog, and also I think he's using he's using field recordings and Kima. Oh, cool! But uh, I just started listening to that. It's a double uh, LP vinyl set and uh wonderful mind blowing cool. really pulling me through <laughs> um yeah and you know i have more uh, uh more hit lists of albums i just brought back that i'll be listening to uh i always keep going back to uh, toro takamitsu who i listened mm -hmm. to in when i was a teenager <laughs> and uh the album was uh, on one side. It was for uh, piece for soprano, voice, and string orchestra called Coral mm -hmm. Island, and the flip side was two music concrete pieces. One called uh, Water Music, uh, which is based on you know a single drop of water being transformed with tape uh, mm. manipulation, and the other is called I AI, which is Japanese for love. And um, I still go back to those. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's what I... Uh, uh, and oh, I find God. out uh, the, the, what I'm doing now is uh, not unlike that. It's like, mm. uh, you know, so... Hope Are that you still answers. Playing yeah, oh, it does. Yeah. Are you still playing Shakuhachi much? Yes. Uh, not much, but yeah, I pick it up every day. <laughs> awesome awesome good breath exercise right yeah what would you say or what did what would you say to aspiring someone aspiring to be a musician like a young person who wants to be a composer or be a performing musician what given your you know vast experience and knowledge of the industry and whatnot what what would you say to them wow well just be who you are and you know follow your passion i know that's a cliche but uh you know mm. i i think the only way well it's not the only way but one way to make it is you know to believe in your own music, your own performance, your own who you are. Uh, yeah. And that's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's not. But, um, um, but it's uh, a, a worthwhile endeavor. <laughs> totally. Believing in yourself, for sure. Mm -hmm. If you could uh, sit down with young 19-year-old Todd Barton, what would you say to him? Was there any advice or any anything you'd want to tell him? Yeah, thank 
goodness, at 70, I'm still as excited about music <laughs> as I was when I was 19. <laughs> awesome. So what's coming up for you, Todd? What What's, uh, I know we're, you know, we're in the middle of this really uncertain time in terms of like live performances where, um, or, you know, I call it physical, we're in physical distancing. I don't like the term social distancing, but we are physically distancing because yeah. of the pan pandemic. Like, but what's, what's on the horizon in terms of, um, performances or recordings or anything that's, that's coming out in the near future? Uh, we'll have a seven inch vinyl coming out of a couple of Buchla pieces. Um, another album I'm working on that's in the works of graphic scores and performances. Mm -hmm. um, also, uh, Rhett Bender at SOU uh, with the saxophone orchestra is uh, doing remote versions of a couple of my pieces. One is called Gassong Law and having the mm -hmm. students each record tracks individually, physically remote, <laughs> and right. then having another student mix them all together. Also another piece called Hacky Sacks. Um, also what I normally do, uh, sort of my day to day, is giving Skype lessons on Buchla, uh, on various types of synthesizers, Buchla, Hordike, Surge, and some Eurorack. So I've, mm -hmm. you know, for years I've been doing these Skype um, yeah. Lesson, private lessons with um, clients, students all around the world. So that'll keep going. Right. Do you teach uh, composition at all anymore or mm. mostly just? Yeah, mainly just synthesis. Mostly just yeah. synthesis. And how, how do we find you? I know you're on the socials and other places. Yeah, so well. People want to dig in more. <laughs> where, where, where should they look? Uh, toddbarton.com and uh, my Instagram, which is synthtodd, S-Y-N-T-H, Todd, mm -hmm. and my YouTube or SoundCloud, you know, those are the usual. Awesome. Well, Todd, it's been great having you on the show. It's been great talking to you and catching up. I look forward to catching up in person once the pandemic is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, likewise, Steve, it's been when great. It, and I look forward to, you know, getting together. Yeah. Any parting thoughts before we uh, say goodbye? Mm, no, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Playful Musician. I'm delighted you could be here. Would you like to get updates and behind the scenes information about The Playful Musician? Well, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There, you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter with all the good stuff. It's quick and easy to subscribe. And if you like the show, well, you're gonna enjoy the newsletter as well. You can find show notes and links to everything talked about on the show on the website as well, and even get a preview of upcoming episodes. Again, check it out at theplayfulmusician.com. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, consider leaving a five-star rating. 
and I'd really love it if you could leave a review. It helps the show to get the wide audience it so deserves. Thanks so much. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Take care.